0: Ephesians, really up until verse 11, what Paul had been doing with the church in Ephesus was he was focusing on who they were individually in Christ, what Christ has made them because of who they are in Christ. They've put their faith in Christ, and now this is who they are. Um, up until verse 33 of chapter, or sorry, verse 11 of chapter two, Paul had made 33 verses of declarative statements about who Christians in Ephesus or Christians, all of us, are in Christ. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul start moving or making a shift in his writing. How? What was he doing there? Well, he started moving from you statements, which are individual kinds of statements, to us or more corporate statements. And so Paul is now focusing on the work of Christ in the church corporately. He has made you this individually, but what is he doing corporately as a body? In fact, just as a heads up, we will focus on Christ's body, the church, in our messages now for likely, possibly the rest of Ephesians. Um, You might start saying, Robbie is getting redundant and repeating himself. (laughs) Haha, you get that joke? Um, I had a lead pastor in Missoula that used to say that all the time, and I thought it was funny. But um, as we get going today, let's do a very short review of a couple of weeks ago, just so that we're all on the same page. Two weeks ago, we talked about the reality that the death of Christ has created a new humanity. And I use this term, a third race. Well, What on earth does a third race even mean? Well, a third race is actually a description that was used of early Christians. Why was this a description of early Christians? Well, here's why. Something crazy was happening between groups of people that never got along ever. And now they were in the same church together, the Jews and the Gentiles. They were almost like not two separate individual races anymore. They were a third thing, something brand new. They were now one in Christ Jesus. And and here's what happens in our broken world. I know that you guys are aware of this, but often, naturally, different nationalities or different kinds of people culturally tend to divide themselves into two parts, And and these two groups are always us and them. In Paul's day, the Jews always looked upon the world as made up of Jews and everyone else. It was us versus them. The everyone else category was called the Gentiles. The Greeks actually did the exact same thing. There um, were the, the Greeks who were civilized people, and then there were all of the rest, which were called barbarians. They actually based the word on the verb barbar, which means to stammer. And so to the Greeks, if you didn't speak their civilized language of the day, then you sounded like a stuttering child to them. When the Romans took over the Greek civilization, they adopted the same terminology. And so everyone within the Roman Empire was Roman. All other people were considered barbarian. The Chinese actually did the exact same thing. China is derived from the word middle. Why? Well, because they saw themselves as the center of the earth, the middle kingdom, and so everything else was on the outside, the periphery. And so in verses 11 through 18, which we studied a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul points out to the Ephesian Christians what is true of all the world. He points out to them that they began divided into two different groups, either Jews or Gentiles. One or the other, the Jew were near to God and they were his covenant people. They had the scriptures, they had the promises of God, they had the knowledge of God, and the Gentiles were far off. They were pagans, they were immoral, and their outlook on life and the future was that of despair and hopelessness. But both of them were separated from God. The Jew and the Gentile alike needed to come to God through Jesus Christ, and this is what Paul said happened in Christ when people put their faith in Christ to the church in Ephesus. He says this in verse 14, For he, he being Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both, both of us, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility. And so, last week we saw this truth, the truth that because of the blood of Christ, Redeemed people, people who put their faith in Christ, are made into a new people, a third race, a whole new creation. Not divided by Jew or Greek, not divided by slave or free, they are a whole new creation, and that creation is the church. It's more than just being made one, it is that, but it's actually totally new. And I shared this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I really like the way in which the early church father Chrysostom said it. He said it like this It is as though one took a statue of silver, so one kind of metal, and a statue of lead, something totally different, put them into a forge, and they came out a statue of gold, something better. God has made a new man out of two bitter enemies through the cross of Christ. And today, what Paul is going to do is he's going to continue in his exhortation by sharing what it is that Christ is building us into as a church. And so, today, and again, really probably the next number of weeks, my goal for us as a church is this I want our view of the local church to be elevated. I want us to think differently about church. I want our view of Christ's body, the church, to be elevated because the church is God's purpose and plan for us who believe. That's a big statement, but it's true. The church is God's purpose and plan for those of us who believe. With this as our goal today, allow me to say something that might sound a little bit aggressive. Okay, forgive me. But here it is. I think that most Christians... And just so it's not so aggressive, let's just pretend that I'm talking about all the other Christians in the world, none of you guys here in this room. But I think that most Christians have an inadequate or misguided view of the local church. But let me me try and explain with two different examples. First, most Christians think in terms of attending church, not being the church. For them, the church is a nice thing to attend on Sunday if you don't have anything else to do and if you were not up too late last night. So you attend church much like you would attend a movie theater. You might greet a few of the other attenders, especially if Robbie forces you to greet a few of the other attenders. And then you get home afterward and you quickly change into your comfy clothes because those pants were too tight. <laughs> that. that is the movies probably, but with regard to the church, you may have no concept of being built together with other saints in a household of God because it's just an event that you attend, not something that you are. So the first reason that I believe that we have misguided views of the church is that we think in terms of attending an event and not in terms of being the church. The second reason that I think that most Christians have an inadequate or misguided view of the church is that a lot of believers choose their church as spiritual consumers. Not, not in terms of being built up and ministering in the most holy faith. So what they do is they shop around for a church that best meets their felt needs. M- much like we would decide whether to shop at Walmart or Target. Which one has what I need, which one makes me feel good. And so if they like the services offered and they get a good feeling when they attend, then they will give the church their business for a while. But if they get bored or they decide that it isn't meeting their needs, then they shop around for another one that suits them better. Again, I'm talking about people that aren't in this room, okay? They don't evaluate a church on the basis of whether it has an emphasis on the scriptures or other biblical criteria, Instead, their evaluation is focused on whether or not the church meets their felt needs or how does it make me feel? Here, here's an example. Some time ago, I read about a couple that was attending a church that was actually not teaching essential doctrine. And so a friend of theirs said to them, hey, your church doesn't believe in the resurrection or even in one true God. And the people said to their friend, yeah, we know that's true, but we love it there. We always come away from the service feeling so much better. And for many people, feeling better is what church is all about. And today, Paul is going to share with the church in Ephesus and with us that God is building something in his church, and it is highly likely that the church is so much more than we think of it. In fact, God's plan for the church is one of unparalleled splendor, it isn't just an event or a feeling. And to illustrate this reality with us, Paul uses three different images in our text today to help us understand our identity as a body of Christ. Each of the images is elevating, and together I hope that these metaphors will expand our hearts for the reality of God's church. With that, let's answer the question, what is God building the church into What is our identity as a church? First, look with me at the beginning of verse 19 and see that our identity as a church is citizens of God's kingdom. The beginning of verse 19 says it like this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So, the flow of the second half of chapter 2 can be seen in three pretty straightforward phrases. The first phrase is in verse 11, which is this, At one time. At one time, you were like this. The second phrase in verse 13 is, uh, but now in Christ Jesus. And then the third phrase is here in verse 19, which is, so then you are no longer. It's really the gospel. At one time, you were alienated, but now in Christ Jesus, you are not. So then, here's what you are. And so, so then in verse 19 introduces the effects of the previous verses. The effects are that Gentiles are no longer refugees. Now they are citizens in the kingdom of God because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I was, I should say, I should start by saying this. I think I'm going to have two really bad illustrations in this sermon today. So forgive me. I was thinking about citizenship this week. And here's my first one. Um, what, what, what does it mean to be a citizen? And, and I'm not sure if you have ever, this is where the bad illustration comes from, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a rodeo, um, and, and maybe it's just me, but there is nothing that will make you more proud to be an American than a good old-fashioned rodeo. <laughs> Cowboy hats and boots, come on. Last summer, my family was visiting Julianne's parents in Big Fork, Montana, which you've probably never heard of which is the way they would like to keep it, I think. But we went to the Big Fork Rodeo, which is just, I mean, it's amazing. And this man who, I, I have a picture, I think it should be up on the screen here in a minute, um, came falling out of the sky, and he had an American flag tied to his leg. And the announcer, as he's coming out of the sky, is listing uh, off all of his service accomplishments. This man was a part of the New York Police Department, and he was a first responder during 9-11. In fact, I read an article this week, because I found this online, that that flag that he was wearing was on, like, 37 different caskets after 9-11. And as this was happening, this guy's coming out of the sky into this rodeo arena. People are taking their hats off. People's eyes are watering. and, And everyone's eyes are fixed on this person. And they're just reading all of the ways in which he served his country and he fought for our freedom. And in that moment, I was just so proud to be from where I was from. I wanted to go buy cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and jump out of an airplane, too. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I was in that moment, and I am so proud to be a citizen of America. To be a citizen is a big deal. And as much as I celebrate my citizenship here, citizenship was an even greater source of pride in the ancient world. And so in the Greco-Roman culture in which Paul was writing to in Ephesus, citizenship was highly personal. In fact, your city city that you lived in provided your identity. The city's laws were a part of your being. Its customs, the source of your pride. The city's inhabitants were your lifelong friends. And so to be Roman was coveted. I mean, just coveted, maybe like being an American is to a lot of other people. These people knew the value of citizenship. And if you think about the flip side of this, to be a foreigner in another city or country, it makes you feel vulnerable, doesn't it? If you've ever visited another country, you need to keep your papers with you in case they want to know if you're legal. You don't know the customs or the language very well. You feel out of place. Citizenship, though, it means you don't have to feel this way. You feel at home. You feel valued. And understanding this, we can see in the opening line of verse 19 that what Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians is absolutely astonishing. He is saying, you have come to possess a citizenship far superior to any local citizenship and even the coveted Roman citizenship. When you are a follower of Jesus, you're a part of some supreme community. It's a third city. It is the church. When you are reconciled to God, then you belong to the church. You are a citizen of the kingdom that has no end. He continues, though, by advancing the idea in verse 19b by saying your identity isn't just citizenship, though. It's more. He progresses in his metaphors, and he says when you're a part of the church, you are members of God's household your family. Look at 19 again. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints. And then he says, and members of the household of God. So to be a citizen is a great privilege for sure, but it's kind of impersonal and it's a little bit large scale, isn't it? I mean, I don't know any of our government leaders personally, and they don't know me. There are millions of citizens in our nation. But a member of the household is a personal and intimate statement. The same word in Greek for household is the word family. And so members of the household of God are family members. Okay, you might be asking, okay, well, if the church is family, then how are we family in the church? Here's how. We have the same father. Later in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 Paul says in recognition of this he says this for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named Maybe you remember the opening lines of the Lord's prayer that we that also celebrates our mutual paternity Jesus says when you pray pray like this in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 he says our father in heaven so we're family in Christ, and because of that, or we are family in Christ because we have the same Father. As family, then, we automatically mouth the same name. Why? Because as Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive a spirit of, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You're part of the family by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So all God's children call him by the same intimate name. We call him dad. And I want us to hear this clearly. As members of God's household, we are in satisfying or should be in tender relationships to one another. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that in the church, we are to relate to each other as a family would. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. So this language, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, that is what those in the reconciled church are to each other. These are terms of endearment. And so as weird as this may feel, I think it is a profitable exercise to think of fellow members of the body of Christ and then silently say their names Attaching family names like brother, sister, father, or mother. Here's the absolute truth for me, and maybe this is true for you as well if you have siblings, but my sisters, and I have two of them, can drive me nuts. Not as much now as they did when we were kids, but um, they drove me nuts. And I'm sure vice versa, although I kind of doubt it. But... (laughs) But you know this if you have siblings. They are my sisters. They're my sisters. I would go to the wall for them. I would fight for them. And that won't ever change. That that is why this picture of family is so important and helpful when we understand the church. God didn't draw us together as acquaintances or friends in the church. We're part of the same family because of Christ. Paul could have just as easily said, you guys are now really good friends in the church. He said, no, you're part of the same household. We may drive each other nuts, but we are a household of God. We are family, and this is hugely important, and it is very practical in its effects to both Paul's audience and to us. And I think that this is true for me as much as it is for anyone else. So don't hear me drive by guilting you. I want you to know that it's easy for us to see the church as a building that we go to or an event that we attend. But the church is family living life on mission together. Meaning this, we all play a part. Just like a family plays a part, all of the members in a family play a part. I believe that we can become accustomed to treating the church like a country club that we visit. If we like the service, then we'll leave a tip. But Paul is blowing this mentality out of the water. He's helping us to see that instead of something that we attend, the church should always be seen in the life of a believer as part of our identity. This is who we are. This is our family. And because of that, we need to understand that we all have a role. And now Paul f- goes on in his text and finishes up with this section of Scripture today by saying that our identity as a church is God's temple. So he says we're citizens. He says we're part of the family. But the other identity of the church is that it's God's temple. Look at verses 20 and tw- through 22. They say this. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul uses this image of a building now to illustrate a further dimension of this humanity and this language. Um, and it would have given Paul's readers a vivid picture. Why? Because for a thousand years, the temple was where God's presence was. First, it was Solomon's temple, then it was Zerubbabel's temple, and then it was Herod's temple. But it had been the official focal point of where God was. The temple was where God manifested His presence in a special way. But now, Paul is saying the people of God are the temple of God. The church are the people. And this new temple has three elements, according to our text. What are they? Well, very quickly, they are this, the foundation. Look again at verse 20. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This is important for us to see as we think about being the temple of God. It's easy to read this kind of stuff and just shrug our shoulders and move on. But here Paul is pointing to the apostles and the prophets. What does he mean? Why does this matter so much? Well, because the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets were the teachers of God's word. They were the people through whom the word of God was proclaimed or taught. And so since both the apostles and the prophets had a teaching role, then the foundation that Paul is talking about is the teaching of God inspired and infallible through his word. So what is he saying in this? He's saying the foundation of the new temple is God's word coming from the apostles and the prophets. And I want us to understand this, and I believe this wholeheartedly. The church will stand or fall in its regard, with its regard for Scripture. If we tamper with the foundation, then the temple will crumble. And this is why Paul ordered Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word. When Paul says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, he is saying that the temple is built on the foundation of God's word. The second element of the temple that we should notice in these verses is the cornerstone. Look again at verse 20. It says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone So as important as the foundation of God's word is, there's actually a component that is even more important, and that is the cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. This imagery is really, really rich, and the people that Paul was writing to would have known the word cornerstone had been a prophetic designation of the Messiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. It says this, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation whoever believes will not be in haste so this is a prophecy of the messiah this cornerstone is jesus additionally every ancient hebrew would have understood the importance of the cornerstone every building depended upon the cornerstone It was what determined the stability of the foundation and the character of the entire building. So just for reference, if we want to know what an ancient cornerstone looked like, the temple in Jerusalem had a foundation stone that was 29 feet in length. So think of like a railroad boxcar. So the cornerstone decided the architectural unity and symmetry of a building. Meaning that all the walls, the dimensions, the entire structure was a result of that chief stone. So with that understanding, we should know that all the other stones in the building had to be adjusted to the cornerstone. And so what Paul is saying to us is that the shape and the stability of God's temple, the church, is determined by Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. All other blocks are formed to him. And then the third and final element of the temple that we are being built into is found in verse 21, and it is this building blocks. Look at verse 21 again. It says, This, in whom, whom being Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the components of God's temple, the church, are God's word, the apostles and the prophets. Christ the cornerstone, and then finally, Paul says building blocks or stones. What's he talking about? He's talking about us. We are the stones in God's temple. And Paul mixes metaphors here, which he does a lot, and he wouldn't have passed ninth grade English. But in that, he refers to the church as stones in the temple, which were carefully fit together. But since dead stones is an inadequate picture, he shifts his analogy here, stating that they are growing into a holy temple. They are living. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The point is that with Christ, the cornerstone, and on the foundation of the word, the Lord is fitting us living stones together so that each living stone contributes to a vital part of the entire building. Individual stones are not of much value apart from the whole, but when they fit together, the entire structure becomes a beautiful, functional place where God is worshiped. The, the implication of this truth, then, of us being God's temple is this, of us being living stones is this. It is only in close relationship with one another that God uses us for his purpose and glory in the church. He, he, there, there is no such thing. I mean, it's, it's possible, but this Lone Ranger Christian thing is not biblical. So, so how does God fit us together as a church, you might be asking? Well, often for the stones to fit together, he has to chip off our rough edges, which is a painful process. We like to think about our Christian life as individual for sure, but sometimes God chips off our edges through relational conflicts in the church, which is where we learn where we need to grow and to change. If we submit to the process, the end result is worth it. We need to understand that in the church, what God is doing is he's knocking off the rough edges. He's shaping us. He's getting us ready. And if he has put you with some people that you just don't like, it could be because they're the chisel that he's using to knock off some of the rough edges to fit you to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And as silly as this sounds, this is no joke for sure. It is exactly what God is doing. He is building a temple. He's building a holy temple, a beautiful, magnificent building where Jesus is the cornerstone and the blocks must fit with him and they must fit together with each other. Before we end, let me point out one last thing that I think is really amazing in all of this and it's found in verse 22, which says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where on earth does God live? It it sounds like a little kid question, and maybe one of your kids will ask you this question some night before bed. Where does God live? What if your kid asked you that question? Let me. Paul gives us the answer right here. And this is why this doctrine of the church is so important for us to understand. God lives in His people, the church. I know that this probably isn't new information for most of us, but this should be information that just blows our mind. The people of God are the dwelling place of God. The plan and purpose of God is to indwell his people in all of their gatherings and in all of their different places. I was thinking a lot about this this week, and, and here's my second terrible illustration of the day, but I can go into an old, beautiful church cathedral. I've been in some in Europe. I've been in some newer buildings here in the United States that are beautiful. The paint is amazing. It's just opulent and gorgeous, and you just think, wow. And I can go into these places 300 years old, 400 years old, 1,000 years old, and it can be really majestic and super historical, and I can take lots of pictures, but functionally, it can have no impact on me. It might make me sort of worship because it's so beautiful, but functionally, it really doesn't do anything for me. And then think about this. On the flip side, and maybe this has happened to you, but I can meet someone who is a follower of Christ in a coffee shop, Or I can meet someone who I've never met before who's a follower of Christ at a rest stop or a grocery store or in the deodorant aisle at Walmart. I'm just trying to help you understand anywhere. And we can begin this conversation and then in those moments of us connecting around Christ with a fellow brother or sister, I can have this realization, wow, I have never met you before in my entire life, but we have the same Father. We love the same Savior. We sing the same songs. We have the same word. We might be from different backgrounds. We might have different educations. We might not be the same race or class or from the same culture, but we are now a part of a multinational temple that is being created. We are both being indwelt by the same God, and in him we are being built together because of the Spirit of God. I can go to church at Walmart when I meet someone who loves Jesus. The building isn't what makes us family. It is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. God is building us together into his dwelling place by the Spirit. The people of God are the dwelling place of God. So what what do we do with all of this information? What should our response be today? Worship team, you guys can come on up. I, I think that our response should be this a higher view of the local church. I said at the beginning of this message that I would like for us to leave here with an elevated view of the church. In this passage, what it does for us is it confronts the typical Western mindset of individualism. And so for any of us to leave here saying, I want to be a Christian in isolation, is to say something like this. I want to be a stone apart from a building, or I want to be a son or daughter separated from a family, or I would like to be a refugee away from my country. I am personally this morning convicted by this because it is easy to treat the church as something that is unnecessary or unimportant or as just an event. But our passage today says the church is essential. The church is part of our Christian identity. So, Maybe you're asking this question, I know I would be, what do I do this morning with this elevated view of the church? Okay, I agree with you. My view is elevated of the church. But give me something practical. And maybe this is preaching to the choir because you guys are all at church this morning. But if we value Christ's body, the church, then we should live out our union with each other in the local church. What does that look like? Well, I read this this week, and I thought that it was pretty thought-provoking, and, and it's really just a practical statement that I think will help us as we practice valuing the church, and you might, honestly, you might want to write it down. I think that it, it's um, very memorable, personally, but here it is. Avoid being a ninja Christian. <laughs> I, I really like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm still a youth pastor at heart, but avoid being a ninja Christian. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means avoid just slipping into a worship service and leaving without a trace. Jo- join a community group. We, that's why we have those. It's not just so that our, you know, we can write in a report that we have a hundred and some people in community groups. Those exist for you guys. This is how we get to know each other. This is how we d- have deep family bonds. Invite someone to lunch after church. <laughs> get to know people in this room. Ask someone for prayer. If we understand what God is doing in building us together, then we should treat this place as we would our family. Our call and our privilege is to be family. Let me end with this. There was a British theologian in the 17, late 1700s, early 1800s named Adam Clark, and he wrote this, and I, I think it's a good way for us to close because hopefully it will just cause you to praise God for his glorious church, and here it is. He says this, there is nothing as noble as the church seeing that it is the temple of God. There is nothing so worthy of reverence seeing God who dwells in it, There is nothing so ancient since the patriarchs and prophets worked to build it. There is nothing so solid since Jesus Christ is the foundation of it. There is nothing so high since it reaches as high as to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is nothing so perfect and well-proportioned since the Holy Spirit is the architect. I love this one. There is nothing more beautiful because it is adorned with building stones of every age every place, every people, from the highest kings to the lowest peasants with the most brilliant scientists to the simplest believers. There is nothing more spacious since it is spread over the whole earth and takes all who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there is nothing so divine since it is a living building animated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. God, thank you for just causing, hopefully, our, our eyes and our hearts to be elevated related to the local church. Lord, this morning, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would be a people that are changed. We would be a people that uh, desire to build into this building, that desire to be a part of this family, that know that we are citizens of God in this kingdom. God, today I pray that our hearts and our lives have been changed and that we would um, honor you by building into your church, your body. In Jesus' name, amen.